Here, for those of you who do, do not know me, uh, and my wife and I, Brittany, were a part of this church for three years. And last summer, we took a job that took us to New Haven, Connecticut. So we're back visiting, and it is really a delight to be back. We enjoyed so much about being a part of this community in Christ uh, and growing in Christ together and doing life together in so many ways. So it really is a delight to be here this morning. And uh, now I work for an organization called Christian Union in New Haven, Connecticut, working with Yale students, where we have about 120 students uh, in our ministry that we teach and we disciple and mentor in in hopes that uh, these very gifted and talented individuals who love Christ and want to serve Christ are transformed in their leadership uh, to both have an effect on Yale's campus, but also in whatever sector of society they go into the rest of their lives. So um, I love the job I get to do, but I also love being back here uh, and opening up the word together. So let me pray for us before we jump in. Father, you are holy and great and wonderful and beautiful. Lord, we pray now that as we open up your word, your spirit would stir our affections for you, that your word would come alive and confront us, and be more than just words on a page, but would truly transform us. Transform us into a people that look more and more like you, that love you, and love others, as you call us to do. So we gladly submit this time and submit our lives over to you. We pray now, God, that you would work and transform by the power of your Spirit. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. What did you expect from your career path? What did you expect from your job? What did you expect from the job search that landed you the job you have? What did you expect from marriage? What did you expect from marriage after kids? What did you expect marriage after 10 years? What did you expect out of singleness? What did you expect out of dating relationships? What did you expect out of friendships? What did you expect out of your Christian faith? Expectations shape so much of how we experience life. Brittany and I moved this past year to New Haven full of expectations, right? I had a brand new job that I had gone through, a very up and down job search that took us from coast to coast, staying here one moment, going elsewhere the next. And so I finally had this job. I had a salary for the first time in my life. Brittany could stay home with our new daughter. We had a lot of expectations. But soon the reality of life hit, and my job became busier and more demanding than I had expected, which made managing life, both at work and at home, much more difficult than expected. Being married and having a striving Growing marriage while becoming new parents in a new city became much more difficult than we had expected. Only being two and a half hours away from the place we loved and cherished became actually a lot further away, feeling like it was, than we had expected. There's more New York Giants fans and Jets fans in New Haven than expected. 
New Haven in general takes on more of a characteristic of New York City than the Boston area than we had expected. Now, sometimes expectations can be spot on. We had been told many times that New Haven has some of the best pizza joints in the U.S., and it is true. We eat at them probably once a week. They are lovely. But sometimes, and probably the majority of our time, expectations can be just quite frankly off. I never had expected at the age of 28 to start the balding process so quickly. I grew up with the expectation from my mother that I had the same thick head of hair that her father had. But now I'm fostering a new expectation that probably when I'm 30, I'm going to have a hairdo more like Matt Cruz than Matt Moran. Right? Expectations foster so much of how we experience life. And our expectations from this past year have definitely been challenged and even changed in certain respects. And I think it's the same way with our Christian faith. Our faith should be constantly challenged out of what we expect out of it and possibly even changed. And today, Paul is going to challenge our expectations. He's going to tell us that our faith that justifies us in Christ, as he's established in Galatians chapter 1 through 4, as you guys have heard throughout this whole past year, is going to carry expectations with it. Expectation specifically to be restorers of those caught in sin, and more generally, an expectation to bear the burdens of other people. Our faith carries an expectation with it. Paul's saying we should expect to be in the mess of one another's lives. Expect to be in the mess of one another's lives. So let's read Galatians chapter 5, or I'm sorry, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 again. Starting in verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is not something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Why, Paul? Why? Why should we expect to be in the mess of one another's lives? Why should we expect to be in each other's sin? Why? Why carry each other's burdens? Don't we all individually have enough burdens on our own? Why? We should really seriously ask this question of Paul. Because Paul's not giving these expectations and really these responsibilities for us just out of thin air. It's not like these commands or these expectations floated down from heaven and we're just supposed to receive them. It's not like an angel whispers them into our ears. But Paul is giving these expectations out of the justified reality that he just laid out in Galatians. That those in faith are justif- or those faith in Christ are justified in him. Out of that reality and out of the whole vision of humanity that he has, that he gets from the biblical narrative. So to really look at these expectations, we've got to flip back in our minds and go back to the very beginning. Galatians, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything. Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning, God created all that we know and all that we see. And he created it and it was good. 
And then it shows that he, God created mankind. And when he creates mankind, he says, he created them in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, in the image of God, he created them. God created humanity to be able to reflect and resemble and represent all that he is to his created order. To reflect his glory to all the created order. But soon, we see sin enter the picture and massively disrupt that purpose of mankind. Still, mankind created an image of God, but now that image is somewhat shattered, broken, unable to rightly reflect all that God is, all his glory to the created order. Right? What dignity that God created mankind with? What purpose? And then sin comes in, breaks it. Breaks the relationship that we have with God. Breaks our individual self. Breaks our relationships with one another. And now, we don't really know who God is. You could say God is hidden now. Until God continues to pursue mankind all the way to where we get to the Gospel of John, And we hear the Gospel of John say that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we now can behold his glory by him taking on flesh and coming and sitting before us, Jesus Christ, beholding his glory. Paul will call Jesus the image of the invisible God. God now, right before us, that we can behold his glory, the image of the invisible God. And what is this glory that we see? Paul explains it in Philippians, the passage you heard read earlier, that because Jesus was God, he humbled himself. He emptied himself, becoming a servant, being perfectly obedient, a perfect image bearer, of God the Father, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the glory of God before us, the image of the invisible God. And Paul now saying, those of us who are justified in Christ through faith, right, unbelievable, this gospel that we have to look and behold the glory of God, we now are justified. God came and dwelt among us, took on flesh, so that we may know him and be reconciled to him. Justification by the image of the invisible God. But now we also are called to participate in that image. We now are being restored in our own image that we were created in through the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, the glory of God. And so now we're not just called in our justification to be justified, but to participate. We're justified to are restored image-bearing through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So burden-bearing here, where Paul gets this command, is simply image-bearing, the very purpose that mankind was created for, the very dignity that mankind was created in by God. And so now, called in Christ to be a restored image-bearer is to be a burden-bearer. Burden-bearing is image-bearing, of the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ. The glory of God dwelling among us 
that we can see and that we can have life in and be a restored image bearer that burdens or carries the burdens of others. Expect to be in the mess of one another's lives. So, this faith now expresses itself primarily in the community. Paul just got done explaining how our freedom now is a freedom not to ourselves. The freedom that we have in our faith in Christ is not a freedom to serve ourselves or to serve our flesh, but to serve one another. This faith expresses itself through love. And so now, this, the community, the life of the community takes the shape of this faith. And that's where Paul gets these commands. So let's get into the text now. He first says, Brothers, you who are spiritual. Two implications here. Paul is calling out the community and saying that we are, share such a common life together that we can be called brothers and sisters. We can be called family members. We share a common life and a common responsibility. When he says, you who are spiritual, that could sound like, you know, someone who's reached a varsity level of Christianity. Maybe, you know, a pastor or maybe a Christian counselor. You know, you've reached a certain level of spirituality. So this rolls for you. No, he's saying both for the community, all of us, we share a common life and a common responsibility. Because those who are spiritual are those who have the spirit, and those who have the spirit are those in faith in Christ. That's everyone. This expectation to be restores, which we're going to get to, is for the whole community of Christ. Then he says, for those caught in transgression or caught in sin. What does that mean? You could hear that and think that, okay, the restorer then is, is almost like playing a game of hide and seek. You know, the restorer is the one seeking and the one caught is the one hiding. And we're to go out and find and seek and shed light. That's not the, the feeling of the passage at all. The one caught in sin is one as if you're overcome by something that you can't get out yourself. You're completely overcome by it. Living in Connecticut, I've had the privilege of already swimming through the Connecticut River. It is a beautiful river. It's actually very expansive, uh, larger than I thought it would be. Um, And as you look at it, you see the water, and it looks very nice and appealing. Um, But what you don't see by just looking at it is that after about 10 yards into the river, there's another about 10-yard span of the river that has thick, nasty seaweed. And so when we jumped into the river to go swim across the river, we didn't realize we were going to hit this wall of seaweed. But we were already committed, so we just kept on going through it. And as we swam through it, it's like this seaweed was so thick that it wrapped around your legs. It kind of tugged at you. So you had to stop every once in a while and literally kick it off you. Unravel yourself from the seaweed to continue on. And we made it through fine, and we enjoyed ourselves in the middle of the river. But then obviously we had to turn back and go back through it. And so we thought to ourselves, well, maybe it'll be easier to kind of like float on our backs and just kind of skim the surface of the water. Possibly that would be easier, but no, it wasn't. As we floated on our backs trying to skim just the surface of the water, this seaweed was so thick and nasty that it comes over your shoulders, almost a sense tugging your shoulders. And so you literally had to stop and take that stuff off you. It was disgusting. I don't think I ever want to swim in the Connecticut River once again. But this seaweed, in a sense, was catching us. 
as we were swimming. And if we weren't good swimmers, or at least decent swimmers, we could have been all the more caught and endangered in that seaweed. Now, see, the Bible, what it tells us about humanity in its brokenness is that we're not good swimmers. We can't swim well when we're going through thick, nasty seaweed. We need outside help getting out of thick, nasty seaweed. We easily get caught in thick, nasty seaweed. And we need help from the outside to get us out of being caught in sin. And there's the need of transparency, right? If you're caught in thick, nasty seaweed and you can't swim out of it, you got to tell people. you got to be open. You have to have the willingness to be open to have help come from the outside and help you get out. The need for transparency for a bad swimmer caught in sin. The need for transparency for a sinner caught in sin. See, the thing about sin is that it hates openness. It hates transparency. It will make your heart feel so twisted, so corrupt, so nasty, that it convinces you just to shove it a little bit further back, just to put it in the back, dark corners of your heart. No one can know about that. Who knows what they'll think of you? So just shove it a little bit further back. And in so doing, it isolates you, pulls you further and further away from others and from the feeling as if you can be in a relationship with God. Sin makes you feel so twisted, deceives you from thinking you can ever be transparent and real and genuine with the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And so sin hates openness and transparency. Do we understand the weight of our sin? Do we understand the deception of sin? Do we understand, do we sense the reality that we are becoming more and more isolated as we shove sin just in the back, dark corners of our hearts? Because the key of getting out is transparency. This is biblical wisdom all over the place. As transparency and the vulnerability of openness before others increases, so the Spirit's power of healing and liberation increases in our lives. As we increase in openness towards one another, so we can experience transformation through the power of the Spirit. And this is when the role of the restorer becomes absolutely crucial. To restore expresses the imagery of something that is misplaced or out of place and needs to be put back, needs to be corrected and put back in order. Like a dislocated bone or broken bone. Right? I'm sure we've all seen a dislocated bone. It's nasty. I remember when I was five years old and I saw my brother dislocate his thumb and his thumb you know, pointed somewhere like this. It was nasty. As a five-year-old, it was disgusting. I didn't want to be around him until he got that thing fixed. And just like a dislocated bone, gentleness is crucial. Someone needed to come in and put enough pressure, but yet enough gentleness and calmness about the situation, to be able to restore his thumb back to order so that the healing process could continue. 
like a dislocated bone. The job of the restorer has to come in with extreme gentleness. Gentleness presents and creates an atmosphere of calmness where a heart that is in tension and in pain feels more calm and relaxed to be open, to express really what's going on. Gentleness, both with dislocated bones and someone caught in sin, is crucial. And what Paul really is doing here is he's showing that gentleness is just one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, that in chapter 5 he just got listed out. So really the restorer has to be one walking in line with the Spirit, walking both with the boldness and the courage to confront a brother or sister in Christ with what's going on, but yet with extreme gentleness, extreme calmness, and love. That only comes from the Spirit. It doesn't come from us. Because we so often have such a morally superior disposition about us. We so easily are so quick to criticize. Do we understand the weight of the role of the restorer that we're called to? Do we understand that we as those called to restore people can either cause sin to be crammed even further deep into the heart, in the dark corners of the heart, by our quick criticism or our morally superior disposition, or we can cause and create an atmosphere where it's safe to be a sinner, and you can come out and actually claim sin and actually experience the restoration of the power of the Spirit. And what's so hard about a morally superior disposition that so often expresses itself into quick, quick criticisms is that we typically don't know that about ourselves. We can't really see that in ourselves. But a morally superior disposition will cause sin to run and hide. And we need to hear Paul's warning that if we think we're something, if we think we've reached a certain level where sin now is no longer there, or specific types of sins are no longer a problem for you, then you need to check yourself and realize that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you're more screwed up than you ever will think that you really are. There's more layers to that onion that haven't been pulled back. But at the same time, the gospel says you are more deeply loved than you can even imagine. So a gospel disposition comes in and says, man, I'm just as screwed up as everyone else. Still deeply broken and sinful. And yet at the same time, still deeply loved. And still in the process of being restored. And so the restorer has to come with the understanding of their own brokenness. Has to come. Because as we come... And as we understand ourselves more and more to be broken individuals, so the one caught in sin will have all the more courage to step out and say, yeah, I'm there, and I need help. I need my brother and sister to walk with me. Burden-bearing is getting into the mess of each other's lives. It is restoring one another caught in sin. We need a gospel disposition. So how do we do this? How do we specifically do this? I'm picturing a gospel community group where actually you 
do confess sin, and if someone actually has the courage to confess real, tangible sin, how do you be restored? Five things I would say. Number one, don't be shocked. Don't be shocked by a sinner actually confessing real, tangible sin. Be more shocked if nothing is going on. If you've got a clean slate, don't be shocked by it. Number two, listen and understand. Listen and understand that there is a long, broken story underneath that confession. A long, broken understanding story that you probably just have a small glimpse of. So be quick to listen and be quick to understand. Number three, point them to Christ. Point them to Christ. Sin causes your eyes to simply be turned in on yourself to where all you see is your own twisted behavior and all you see is that you are completely alone. The restorer has to come in and say, no, 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 look to Christ. Be reminded of his forgiveness once again. Be reminded that he carried your burdens to the cross and then point them to yourself and say you're no longer in your sin by yourself. We're here with you. You're no longer isolated. We're here as a constant reminder of the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're here to walk together in this fight and struggle. You're no longer by yourself. Point them to yourself. And then lastly, pray. Pray over them. Pray over yourself for the Spirit of God to come and transform you and to liberate you and them from sin. Okay. The second reality, more generally, that Paul describes here is just burden-bearing. Burden-bearing. And Paul's point in calling us to bear the burdens of one another is not necessarily to list out specifically how this unfolds, but to essentially give us a vision of life, give us an expectation of life to burden or to carry the burdens of others. And so this is literally playing a three-legged race with one another. This is quite literally tying your leg around someone else and saying, we're going to walk through this together. As if these burdens and struggles of your neighbor or your friend become your own. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and theologian, uh, talking about burden-bearing, once said that in burden-bearing, the sins and the needs and the struggles of my neighbor become my very own, just as Christ took on our burden as his very own. Martin Luther once said provocatively, when Christ was on the cross, he became the greatest sinner there ever was. How could he say that about Jesus Christ? becoming the greatest sinner there ever was. Because Christ, Christ quite literally, took our burden, took our sin upon himself on the cross as if they were his own. And that's what we're called to as burden bearers, to jump into the messiness of one another's lives as if it was the mess of our own lives. We are called and expected to be in the mess of one another's lives. And this is small burdens and big burdens. This is everywhere. This is everyday life. I wish I could run through examples of how I've seen this happen. But this is everyday life. 
Because even the small burdens lifted are necessary expressions of Christ. Paul ends this section as saying that as we bear one another's burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. Whoa, what does he mean by that? Fulfilling the law of Christ? Essentially what he's saying is that Christ didn't have a specific law that he issued, like the law of Moses, but he had a life that he lived. And as we carry one another's burdens, we are actually expressing Christ towards one another. We are a visible representation of Christ towards one another, fulfilling the life of Christ, the life of Christ which expresses itself supremely through his self-giving love that took him to the cross. So as we bear one another's burdens, as we jump into the mess of one another's lives, we are becoming Christ towards one another, where we can visibly and tangibly see the reality of Christ before us as we jump into the mess of one another's lives. Burden-bearing is being Christ for one another. Expect to be in the mess of one another's lives. And guys, this is our strongest witness. Because there's a great cost to burden-bearing, right? There's a sheer physical energy that it takes. We have burdens ourselves. And so, so to expect and live life where we enter into the burdens of others, it's at a great cost of time, energy, resources, and most of all, comfort. Comfort. It is quite true. It's a burden to bear. But it is, this is our strongest witness to the surrounding community. This is our strongest witness to the city. This is our strongest witness to the world. As we bear one another's burdens and run to the burdens of the world, we express Christ to one another and to this world. This world, yes, it needs Scripture, but it doesn't need Scripture pounded down its throat and forced to swallow it. It needs to hear the gospel and it needs to tangibly see it from one another as we seek the burdens of this world and express Christ with both our words and our lives. This world is filled with burdens, hard, deep, strong burdens. I don't know if you've heard from some of these, but recently the 298 who died in the flight that was killed or shot down in Ukraine. Imagine all the families, the whole families that were wiped out in that plane, the sorrow and the pain and the misery so many individuals are going through. 500 Palestinians have died so far in the ongoing bombing between Israel and Gaza, civilians and children included. 40,000 of them are misplaced. No homes, no clean water. Can you imagine? Over 200 Nigerian girls back in April were kidnapped. Probably sold into marriages or slavery. Or for sure still missing. Can you imagine the 400 parents still mourning the loss of their girls? Not knowing where they are? Can you imagine the suffering that these individuals are going through? Just this last weekend, just this last weekend, there was a group of Christians in northern Iraq that had been in this city for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they were forced to make a decision. They had to either stay in the city and convert to Islam, 
stay in the city, pay a hefty tax, or stay in the city and die. Or they had to leave. So just this last weekend, they had to make that decision. So more than likely, 10,000 Christians from northern Iraq had to pick up their bags and hit the road. Now completely, all these individuals in this, in this pain, in this loss, need burden bearers, need people to jump into their lives, need people to be visible, tangible expressions of the love of Christ in their lives. And this is why we have that expectation. And that is our strongest witness to a burdened world. This church, the people in our city, in this world, needs burden bearers that reflect the image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ, through his self-giving love towards one another. Will we live with that expectation? Will our faith in Christ continue to challenge our expectation to live in the burdens and mess of one another's lives? They're there. They're everywhere. Let us be a people that run to the burdens of others and so expressing Christ to a broken and burdened world. Father, this task seems almost too daunting, too much to bear, because we know our own weakness. But Lord, we were reminded week in and week out as we come to your table that you invite us to, and we hear once again, take my body, take my blood, join me at my table, we hear once again that you have taken our burdens in the most supreme way, in the most costly manner. You have taken and lifted our burdens. And so let us feast on you now and strengthen us, O God, that we may be people that run to the burdens of our neighbors, that runs to the burdens of others, that restore those caught in sin, Let us be these people. Let us live life in this expectation that you may be known, that more people would join this table and feast upon you and find life in you, that your kingdom may come. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.